Hello and welcome to this segment of Two Worlds, One Country, the show on WEHC and WISEY's FM, where we explore the underlying causes of what divides us, particularly the rural-urban divide, and we talk to folks who are thinking about, writing about, and working on things that will build a healthier society and economy, uh, ways that we can begin to overcome these divides. Today, I'm really delighted to have a colleague whom I guess I've known for a little over a decade or so, Marjorie Kelly. Marjorie is a senior fellow at the Democracy Collaborative, an organization that works on building uh, more democratic economies and a stronger democracy overall. And she is also a, I would say, prolific author and a provocative author focused on different ways to build economies that actually work for people and the economy <laughs> and the ecosystem. And this is how I came to know Marjorie, by reading her books, and then I got to know her a little more personally, which was delightful. Today we will talk about her newest book called Wealth Supremacy. It's one, one of hers that I've not yet read, but I'm excited to read about. So I want to welcome Marjorie to Two Worlds, One Country. Yeah, thanks, Anthony. It's great to be here. It's delightful to have you. So we'll start off, if you're willing, Marjorie, with just, uh, as we do with our guests, with just a little bit about yourself, your, your upbringing, and kind of what took you to where you are now. What were those influences that brought you to where sure. you are? Yeah, Anthony, I... Um... You know, I think I would start with as as a as a child, I was always very spiritual. I was raised Catholic. I had a sense of a large force for good in the world. Mm -hmm. I was active in Girl Scouting. Mm -hmm. You know, I learned about being of service to others. And then more recently, I've been a student of Buddhism. And you know, both Buddhism and and systems thinking and and in fact physics point to a truth which is that we're all interdependent there's only one system and we're all part of it and anything else is is an error and a delusion and uh, you know I, I i made a decision i i come to this work as a journalist and i published business ethics magazine back in the late 80s and I, I did so because you know i wanted to make a difference in the world and i thought if you want to do that business is the place to do that I, I thought that good business people and responsible investors were going to change the world. Mm. And, and I wanted to celebrate them and write about them. And, and I came to see over the years that the problems are systemic and that we can't solve it through individual actions. And, and, and that's when I wrote my, my first book, The Divine Right of Capital, uh, to talk about how, you know, we, we democratized government as a society long ago we've never democratized the economy and that's mm. the problem and that's the direction of the solution that's really interesting and i'm i'm glad you got to that cuz that was going to be my my first question that was indeed the first book of yours that i read the divine right of capital and and this is probably a a simplistic caricature of of it but but i've often thought that the of the many important insights i got from the divine right of capital you made the argument that capital kind of in the form usually of really big corporations the people who run mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. that we treated it 
as if it had divine rights, as if it was um, mm. a, a royal family whose whose um, mandate to rule was passed down in the same sort of way, something that just wasn't wasn't up for question. And again, I'm, I, that's my mm-hmm. spin on, on it. And, but so first of all, tell me if I'm in the ballpark, correct me if I'm totally wrong, but then tell me a little bit more about what was some of the essential argument in that book. You're definitely in the ballpark, Anthony. I think you picked up the basic message. And, you know, when I wrote Divine Right of Capital, I was looking for a metaphor to explain how crazy capitalism is. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I struck, I, uh, I hit upon the monarchy. And the more I wrote about it, Anthony, the more I realized this isn't just a metaphor. This is actually the same mind at work. Mm. I mean, you know, capitalism comes to us from Britain. And Britain was at one time, the largest power in the world with its empire. And it was uh, imperialism and monarchy were all the same mind. Some people matter. Most people don't. Mm. You know, there are a Mm. few who are royal and then there's the aristocracy. And those are the the landowners, the property owners and everything exists to serve them. They hold the power. And um, that's really the ancient mind of that comes to us from Great Britain and which is still alive in our property system, which which is now capitalism. So I, I, you know, I kind of took that mind apart in the divine right of capital. And what I'm doing, Anthony, with this book is I'm returning to that, essentially that same argument and broadening it. it divine right of capital was about corporations that was published in 2001. And since then, we have come more and more to occupy a financialized economy that power has passed to capital. Even corporations are controlled by big capital, and uh, and 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 big capital is built on this. Uh, I, I look at seven myths in this new book, Wealth mm. Supremacy, and the first one is that no amount of wealth is ever enough. Mm. That is the core premise of our investing system, and it's the core premise of our economy. I mean, Bill Gates at one point had ten billion dollars. He turned around, he invested it. Within about two decades, he had $300 billion. I mean, that's laughable. And yet, you know, the way it's set up, corporations are supposed to maximize returns to shareholders, which means workers are supposed to work long hours at low pay in order to make more wealth for for Bill Gates. (laughs) Well, that's insane. That's It's anti-democratic, right? And and the notion that most of us have about and I, I wanna I wanna keep uh, coming back to wealth supremacy, but I also want to talk about some stuff you've done in between. But one of the notions is that this idea that whatever you have, it's never enough. That uh, however wealthy you might be, you still need more. We tend to attribute that to sort of a basic human failing. That that's just greed. Uh-huh. That's just the way some people are. And of course, there are people who are more greedy than others. But I think mm-hmm. I think part of what you're saying is it isn't just greed. It's actually an imperative of the, the capitalist system of constant growth. Is that right? Yes. I think you put your finger right on it, is that greed is institutionalized in mm-hmm. financialized capitalism. And I need to emphasize 
that we're in financialized capitalism. Okay, so, so is, I'm I'm going to pause you for a minute because I don't think everybody's familiar with that term. Yeah. Explain to us a little bit what that means when we're talking about yeah, financialized. Yeah. Right, right. Well, economists have warned about financialization for decades. And what it means is there's too much financial wealth in the world. But back in the 1950s, when I was a kid, financial assets, and that's, you know, stocks, bonds, debt of various kind, you add them all together, that sphere of financial wealth was roughly equal to gross domestic product, which is, you know, the flows of income and spending in our economy. Mm -hmm. So you have, you know, they were equal. Now, financial assets are five times GDP. And yet the way the system is built, they're supposed to grow infinitely. And they're the growth of financial wealth is supposed to come first before everything else. That's financialization. And that that's the nub of the problem that okay, we face. Okay. And just think, just pause for a minute to think about the fact that this financial wealth could be five times greater than the total size of the economy is kind of nuts because that means yeah. that means that there's got to be a lot of kind of make-believe wealth in there if it's <laughs> so much greater than all the goods and services that are produced and exchanged. I mean, for yeah, goodness sakes. That's right. That's right. There's make-believe in there. And there's also this infinitely expanding process. I mean, I, I write about right now, big capital is out there buying water rights yep. in California and Colorado because water is becoming scarce. And so they see it as a new asset class right. that they want, you know, hedge funds and big in financial institutions want to monetize this. They're out there um, wanting to acquire farms and forests. Insane, Anthony. I mean, if, if if this thing is five times bigger than the real economy and it has to keep growing, that means it has to keep absorbing more and more. That's the scary part. Yeah. That's the point we've reached. Absolutely. So I want to come back to that. And because at some point I'm beginning to see in my mind as you're talking a, a tie in with some of the, the problems that Rural Urban Bridge deals with around the underlying divide, which is both a, you know, an economic problem, but it's also become quite a political problem where so many people feel disenfranchised. And then that sense of being kind of taken from, stolen from, disenfranchised has become uh, a whole new set of politics. But before we get to that, I want to I wanna go into your kind of middle phase, I'm going to call it, as a, as a thinker and writer, where you began to really focus a lot on alternatives in the business place itself, when you really began to discuss the benefits of worker ownership and cooperatively owned enterprises. And you've done that in a lot of settings, but one of them was certainly your book, Owning Our Future. So tell us a little bit about why you're an advocate for worker ownership and cooperatives. Yeah, that that's great. I um, asked myself, if you were not going to design companies for maximum extraction by capital, how would you design them? And I traveled the world and looked at, at companies that were designed differently. And what I came to see, one of the models I love the most is, is worker ownership. And, uh, you know, for example, in the Bronx, there's a, a large 
home health care agency. Most of the women who work there are Latina or African-American, and they own that company. It has 2,000 workers, and it's um, it's serving the disadvantaged, and it's completely owned by workers. There's a, a large recycling and waste hauling company in the Bay Area. It's over a billion dollars in revenue. Recology, it's completely owned mm. by its workers. And these are there are companies that they, they want to serve the public good and they're owned by their workers. And I think that is the next generation of enterprise that we need to make the new model. My own read on, on cooperatives and worker-owned is that they have benefits for the workers. They also have benefits as a business, kind of competitive benefits sometimes, and then broader benefits. So maybe we could spend a, a minute or so on each of those. Yeah. Well, the first thing is that there's more stability for workers. They're, they're about one-fourth as likely to be laid off, hmm. which is wonderful. I mean, you, you don't send jobs overseas if you if it's your company. You're not going to send your own job overseas. You're also not going to uh, uh, lay people off in a, in a downturn. There is more retirement wealth for workers at employee stock ownership plans. There's r- roughly double the retirement savings for workers. These these workers have $100,000 or more in savings when they retire and leave that, that company. These, these companies are less likely to go out of business. They can be slightly more profitable. It's a, it's a successful firm if, if the measure of success is something besides share price for absentee shareholders. Mm, mm, okay. And so they're, they're good for workers. Workers presumably, like you say, they have they have more likely to amass some savings and wealth because they're not only getting their wage, they're, they're getting a portion of the profits the company is building. It's good. It makes the business itself at least, if not more competitive, and particularly during tough times. What's the benefit to the broader society, to the community that they're in, or just to the broader society? Yeah, that's a great question. And the answer is that worker ownership keeps wealth local. It keeps wealth rooted in community, and then that wealth recirculates. Uh, There's studies showing that there's three times the recirculation of wealth when a company is locally Mm. owned. Mm -hmm. Um, You're buying goods locally, you're hiring locally, you're investing locally. So this is really beneficial to to communities. And I would add, Anthony, that uh, there are other forms of broad ownership, as I'm sure that you know. You know, for example, farmer ownership, Organic Valley is uh, one of my favorite companies. It's over a billion over a billion in revenue. It's got, I think last I heard, 1,800 organic family farms own that business. And that business aims to pay farmers as much as it can for their milk and cheese. Uh, and um, farmers sit on the board and they elect the board. So this is a company that is exists to serve farmers rather than to extract wealth from them. Absolutely. I was thinking of Organic Valley as one of the preeminent farm and, and rural examples of a great co-op. And, and I was reading up a little bit about them a couple of years back. On top of the benefits of better wages and profit going back to the farmers, when they've opened some of their um, processing facilities, because they do milk and cheese as well as other things, they apparently 
very much set them up so that they circulate regionally. So they don't just move milk from organic farmers who are members across the country. They try to set, like if they, if the cheese facility is in upstate New York or Vermont, they try to source most of the milk from organic dairymen in that region. So they're really trying to keep the, uh, the stuff circulating, as you said. Yeah, that's right, Anthony. And I, I would point to the alternative, which is corporate ownership of farms. And, uh, you know, in Wisconsin, for example, Wisconsin used to be one of the most prosperous areas for farmers. Dairy farmers were, were very prosperous. In the last decade or so, 40% of dairy farms in Wisconsin have gone under. Oh, it's and it's, incredible. it's, it's, it's this, yeah, it's this corporatization. Corporate farms are taking over. And so, you know, we, the people as farmers, as consumers, we're, as workers, we're no longer owning our economy. It's owned by these few uh, who are taking the wealth from our communities and sending it to Wall Street. So rerouting ownership in community, in broad-based hands, that's that's the kind of democratic economy we need to be working for. I mean, I think that most people, Marjorie, would would find that those two words side by side that that you must have you must have misspoken to, to say <laughs> democratic and economy in the same thing because I think for probably people everywhere I guess but certainly in our country the idea of democratizing the economy is is really foreign people just assume that the economy is dog eat dog every man and woman for themselves etc cetera, etc cetera. And yet you've seen it play out. You've seen more democratic forms of the economy. And it isn't just like yoga studios. You've seen it in, <laughs> in competitive businesses that are producing real goods that people need. So why do you suppose it's such a foreign notion to us to think that we could demand and eventually build a democratic economy? Well, this goes to... What I'm pointing to is a form of bias, Anthony. I call it wealth supremacy. I call it capital bias. It's 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 part of the trio of 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 race bias and gender bias, you know, capital bias. I mean, we used to think it was normal that all power was held by men. That every legislator or judge or president uh, had always been men. And that was considered normal. And you could say the same thing about race. It was considered normal that um, white people held all the, all the power. Right now, we consider it normal that wealthy people hold the power in our hmm. economy. Hmm. And that's a bias. That's a form of bias that we need to see is not legitimate. And, and it's time uh, to change it. That's so uh, compelling when you put those three side by side the race, gender, and wealth. I, I had never mm -hmm. thought of them in exactly the same way. Well, let's, we've, still got a, we've still got a few minutes. Let's talk in more detail about your latest book, which I, I understand came out um, last week. Is that right? Uh, yeah, wealth that's supremacy? right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it just came out, Anthony. Great, great, great. Yeah, so, so I, um, you know, like you, I've been working for a more fair, more just economy for decades and i've i've become discouraged because we're losing ground 
faster than we're gaining it. Right. And what what I have seen and what I write about in this book is it's not enough to build the positive. We have to turn and discredit and dismantle wealth supremacy. We have to dismantle these financial extracting machines like like hedge funds and private equity that really are and and major corporations too we have to change their dna and say no serving the wealthy is no longer the purpose of our economy we cannot survive that economy we need an economy that serves all of us it's so obvious the minute we the minute you say it you can call it a democratic economy some people call it a well-being economy I, I like to use the word democracy because I think that speaks to uh, something that's precious and that we all care about. And we need a fully democratic society. And if you have a, if half the economy, if half the society is plutocratic and half is democratic, that will not endure. One side is going to take over the other. And I, I think that's what we're seeing right now with the rabid right wing really behind that is the is the wealth of billionaires they're they're what is fueling what seems to be a kind of a grassroots movement but it really there's billionaire think tanks behind it and the destruction of democracy is what that movement is trying to do and we need to turn and do the opposite we need to say no democracy needs to enter the economy that's the kind of society that we need yeah yeah i love the way heather mcgee puts it in her book, The Sum of Us, I'm going to paraphrase a bit and not be quite as eloquent, but she says, the plutocrats know that solidarity is the answer, and that's why they go to such great lengths to keep white people who are struggling from having empathy with also struggling people of color. And and they're behind the scenes, and, and sometimes they're even supposedly uh, big cultural uh, or social liberals, and yet actually <laughs> they're behind this wealth extraction model that that sets us against each other. So, so I think that's another important insight because you know a lot of the work I've done for most of my life. I mean, I've I've certainly done my share of of advocacy on policy and the rural New Deal we've just released as a example of that. But mostly, I've been down in the trenches trying to create the positive, as you say, and I mm-hmm. think. And, and with a few successes. And then when I add my few successes to the successes of, of you know, people all across the country, there's a whole lot of positive examples. And yet I've come to the same conclusion you have, that that by itself, it just didn't add up to right. enough to change the trajectory of the political and economic forces. I thought it would. I, I thought for sure it would. It was like, how could this not be the the heart and soul and the um, and the decisive factor in making us fairer, juster, and more democratic. And and in fact, it isn't. So if we're going to take on the the bad stuff, tell us a couple of the other key lessons from wealth supremacy. Because you said there was seven basic. I don't remember if you called them insights or findings, but tell us a couple of the others. You mentioned. Uh, the yeah. first one. Yeah, seven myths. I seven call myths, them. seven myths, right. Yeah, and they really are the operating system of, of capitalism. And, you know, for example, one is that workers are not members of the corporation. Only capital holders are, are members. Well, that's absurd because 
capital these days might be an algorithm that changes uh, stocks every couple of minutes. And yet that is considered an insider of the corporation that has voting power. Workers who work at the same company for 30 or 40 years and go there every year, every day, they're not considered insider. They're considered outsiders. Well, that's absurd. And, and employee mm. ownership is, is, is a key answer to that. Workers are, are part of the corporation in the same way that women and black people are part of society. You, mm-hmm. you can't have, you can't have an economic society that only serves capital, only empowers capital. So that, so that's one. And, and another one is the myth of the income statement. And this is, you know, Greek to most people, but it's the lens that all corporations use to view the world. And it simply says, you have money coming in, that's revenue, you have money going out, that's expenses, and what's left over is profit. Well, that seems normal until you recognize that income to capital is called profit, and that's good, and you're supposed to have more and more and more of it, and income to labor is called expense, and that's bad, (laughs) and you're supposed to cut it and have less and less and less of it. So even designed into the lens, the seemingly neutral lens of the income statement, there's a bias against workers and a bias in favor of capital. So that's another example. And then I would point to the myth of the free market, which says that corporations and capital should have complete freedom to roam the world and and extract where they will. And democracy has to be subdued because democracy is the enemy of the independence of wealth. And um, and we can't we can't survive uh, if if capital and corporations have more power than democracy, which which they do today. Yeah. And these myths that you're talking about, and particularly that last one, that that's, those aren't just Republican or right-wing myths. I mean, there's a significant amount of buy-in that liberals and Democrats have had to these myths over the years as well, would you say? Yeah. I, so what I say, Anthony, is that this these myths, this operating system is is essentially on autopilot. It's taught in business schools. It's enforced in the courts. This isn't really about a few people thinking bad thoughts. So this is the norm of how business and investing is done. And when we recognize that it's biased, it's biased against most of us and biased in favor of the wealthy. Once we recognize that it's a bias, I think we will see it's it's not legitimate. And in fact, there is another way to design an economy. And that's where the positive models have their role. And I think that we can we can get the momentum that we need. If we if we see this system is not legitimate and 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 start to look for alternatives, we'll we'll find the alternatives that those like you and I and people we know have been building. Right. And that's one of the I mean there's there's not a lot of things to give us heart and hope in the current era. But one of them is the fact that compared to 30 years ago, there aren't just a few pilot projects out there. There's like a body of demonstrable successes, things people tried, worked out the kinks, and now they're like really solid ways of tackling everything from creating jobs to tackling uh, health and housing problems. So if we change the operating system, we actually have a wealth of working models that we could build on to to create the new system. We're, we're not starting from scratch. 
Yeah, that's right. And it's farther along than people realize, as you say. I mean, 85% of Americans right now get their water from a municipally owned utility. So these, this is government right. ownership, which mm-hmm. we're taught to fear. Right. This is city, city and county ownership. And it, it gives us better service at lower cost. 15% of forests worldwide are controlled by indigenous people and, mm. and communities. And the UN says that that's vital to preserving endangered species. So a democratic economy, as you said, the models we need are here and, and, and they work. Yeah. That's good. That's an encouraging note. Well, we've just got a minute left. I'm going to ask you to step into what I think is slightly less familiar. So how do you see this information, your work, perhaps impacting that rural-urban divide? Yeah. Well, at the Democracy Collaborative about 20 years ago, uh, my colleagues coined the term community wealth building. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a form of local economic development that aims to keep wealth local and in broad-based hands by having communities own and control their own assets. And that model applies in both rural and urban areas. I think if we can help people to see that it's the big corporations and the big banks uh, that are moving in and taking the wealth of rural communities, that's really, those are the forces that we need to call out and say, no, they cannot be in charge of our rural rural communities and, and recognize that uh, across rural, rural and urban and across people of color and white people, you know, we have common interests in taking our economy back from the wealthy few who are really extracting from the rest of us. I think there's a narrative and a, and a process that we can we can call out and say we can build locally healthy and wealthy communities, rural and urban, and do it together. Yeah, yeah, well put. Terrific. Well, Marjorie, I'm so glad you were able to join us on Two Worlds, One Country. And um, I'm really excited about getting your new book, which is called Wealth Supremacy. I can just about assure listeners who might uh, look it up and order it that it's going to be not only deeply, deeply thoughtful and insightful, but very readable. Good work on all that. Delighted to have you again here. And thanks for coming. I hope you'll come back sometime. 